Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the London's First Podcast. First of all, I want to say thank you for the support on the last episode with Bobby Vincent from Football.London. That did really well. We did a Chelsea transfer Q&A chat. So if you haven't gone and listened to that episode, then make sure you do, because I think it was a really good episode. And the information and news is still relevant, as it wasn't that long ago. So before we introduce today's guest, what you could do for me to really help me out would be to leave a rating on this podcast. It's on Spotify. So if you just type in London's first podcast, go onto the main menu, and then you can see the ratings. If you can give that a five-star rating, if you have enjoyed um, all the episodes so far on today's episode, that would really, really help me out. So far, we've got 85 ratings, and it's nearly a five-star. So if we can try and get to 100, that would be really, really good. I know so many more people listen to this podcast i can just tell by the analytics but if you guys can yeah leave a rating that would be really really appreciated it only takes a few seconds so anyway introducing today's guest is someone that is uh very familiar to this podcast ben jacobs uh glad to have you back on how are you doing today yeah great to be here this might be my third appearance so i think you owe me a hat trick ball at this <laughs> point yeah i think it is your third appearance um i am working on others but i really do enjoy speaking to you um so yeah, and the information and just detail you do give. Um, so we've got a fresh episode for you guys today. I know a lot of questions have come in. Um, so Ben, let's start with the managerial situation because this was not something that was, you know, relevant last time. Um, as such, you know, Chelsea were planning with Graham Potter for years and years and years. Obviously, we know now he got sacked. And they're doing an, what is described as, you know, you've said this as well, an exhaustive process to try and find the new manager. Frank Lampard is in his interim. So what is the latest on the managerial front? Because ever since Frank Lampard has, has come in, it has just gone absolutely silent. Nothing nothing seems to be happening, but I'm sure it is behind the scenes. What have you heard um, about, you know, Luis Enrique, Julian Nagelsmann? And also one of the fan questions says... Um, is there a name that is not really being spoken about right now that we should, you know, be, you know, be wary of, you know, look for sort of thing, keep an eye out for? Well, I think when people want an update on the permanent manager, they again, perhaps look at that search and transfer terms and they expect daily updates. But if the search is exhaustive and thorough, as was now said on record in the statement by Chelsea, then it is going to take time. And the whole point is that if Chelsea wanted to rush and be quick, they'd have appointed a permanent manager ahead of Real Madrid in order to focus on that game. And now they have some time. So I think it's normal that they'll do their due diligence. And it's not necessarily about a lack of progress so much as wanting to make sure they don't fall into the same trap as with Graham Potter and pick who appears to be a leading candidate and then not end up talking to enough people. So regardless of who they go for, you'll see Chelsea interview candidates with Champions League experience, those who are perhaps younger, like Julian Nagelsmann, and also those with Premier League experience as well. So it's absolutely correct that Luis Enrique, who Chelsea have already met face-to-face, -face, and Julian Nagelsmann, who Chelsea will meet, Face-to-face -face are the two front runners at the moment. And the Nagelsmann has, of course, worked before with both Lawrence Stewart and Christopher Vivelle. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's done and dusted. Mauricio Pochettino will be in the frame. Ruben Amarin is an interesting one as well, because Chelsea actually earmarked him when they appointed Graham Potter. And believe it or not, this is what clubs do. They actually keep a list of managers, even when they're not looking. And that's exactly the same for, let's say, 
Manchester City or Arsenal, who are both succeeding and flying at the moment, the day that Pep Guardiola is appointed, or the same for Mikel Arteta, most clubs have still got their own list of names. Because to develop the relationship, much like with a player, with any potential manager that you might need one day, you have to ultimately also put in an element of legwork. It's not quite the same as a transfer, but this is why some clubs can move quite quickly because they've always had names in mind, even if it doesn't appear that they have the need to look. So keep an eye on Amarim because he falls into that young coach bracket. But I think that what Chelsea have been debating internally is essentially has Potter changed their mentality and model from wanting young long-term years, not games, and ultimately that fit with the strategy and the vision and a personality fit, as well as a great football coach. Has it kind of gone back full circle now to accepting that a football coach, first and foremost, even if they have to be a bit more flexible in their model, is more important? And this is what's going to be interesting about a two-way process, because it's not only about Chelsea moving and picking who they want. It's about the manager feeling like they're going to walk into a football club where they can succeed. And the bigger the name, the more demands they'll have, and maybe the more flexible Chelsea will have to be with their own model and also surrendering an element of autonomy. So I don't think a lot is going to change in the next, let's say, week, certainly not in that gap between the two Real Madrid fixtures, other than behind the scenes, Chelsea are going to be talking to people and trying to establish what might be a short list of up to seven, down to at least three. And then from there, they'll be able to make a decision as to one, who they think that they want, and then two, can they get them? And of course, that's where, again, it's a two-way process because it's not only Chelsea saying, you're our number one choice, it's that manager ultimately responding and saying, I might have other options. I want to wait until the end of the season because there could be the PSG job available, the Real Madrid job available. We know there's a Tottenham vacancy available and there'll definitely be some overlap in candidates. So right now, I think that Julian Nagelsmann can be termed the early favourite and has always indicated that he would only want to join at the end of the season. And I don't think Chelsea ever really got round to aggressively or definitively trying to persuade him otherwise. And then Luis Enrique actually would have been open potentially to taking the role earlier and having a shot at the Champions League. But Chelsea just felt like they couldn't go in any direction with any candidate before they'd done that due diligence. And they've been very genuine about that, that nothing would be imminent. And that's obviously where the Frank Lampard thing came in. And then in terms of other names that might be surprises, First of all, we should rule out Carlo Ancelotti, contrary to some reports out there, I'm told pretty categorically that he's not on Chelsea's list. The same for Antonio Conte as well. So there'll be no return for either of those two. And I think that because they'll speak to seven, there will be some surprises that are not necessarily at this point being seriously considered or are front runners, but will creep into the conversation and internal discussions. And that's where I think that 
some surprise names may materialise simply out of due diligence. For example, Chelsea will want Premier League experience and will want to therefore talk to managers that know the league because it may give them some perspective or a yardstick against more leading candidates. And that's where, for example, Marco Silva at Fulham with the Spurs job has come into the mix. I don't think that Chelsea will end up speaking to Silva themselves, but Tite is one to keep an eye on for sure. And then I think that there'll be a few other younger up-and-coming managers that Chelsea just want to touch base with, even if it's not for the vacancy now, because they feel like in the future it might be the kind of job that well suits them. So I think that therefore we need to keep an eye on a few surprise names who may not be right at this moment, but definitely could be ones to watch within the future. And what Chelsea want to do, therefore, is ultimately make sure that they don't drop the ball in terms of that exhaustive search. And I think as well at the other extreme, Luciano Spalletti is another one just to keep an eye on. I don't think that he would take the Chelsea job, to be perfectly honest with you. I was over covering the Napoli-Milan game when Milan actually beat Napoli and comfortably as well. And I spoke to Spalletti afterwards and he wouldn't be drawn on any early links at that stage. Clearly right now his sole focus is on winning the Scudetto and also going as far as he can in the Champions League. But he's also 64 and I think that Chelsea might want to go a little bit younger, a little bit more long-term but all indications from my trip over to Naples is that Spalletti may well be someone on the shortlist. They may reach out to him, but I don't see him as being particularly interested in taking this job, given how fly, how how high Napoli are flying at the moment. So there's a lot of names out there. There'll be a lot of progress. But, you know, despite all of this exhaustive search right now, there's these two front running candidates in Julian Nagelsmann and Luis Enrique. And I think that will remain the case throughout the search. Obviously, we can't put like an exact time frame on things, but do you think by the end of April going into May, we might have a really good idea on who's going to be the next Chelsea manager? Well, they'll have certainly done more interviews and FaceTime, so the picture could well be clearer. And by the same token, Chelsea won't want to rest on their laurels because they still know that there's an element of competition and the coach will always have the control. So if, for example any of these coaches feel like there's going to be another opportunity that piques their interest, then they're not just going to commit to Chelsea in April or May if they think by the end of May, PSG and Real will be available. And deep down, even though it may not be public, with Real and PSG in particular, you find that these clubs are searching whilst their manager is in situ. So Ancelotti saying that if Real will have him, he'll stay until 2024. But a lot of people feel like that may be 2023 and if Chelsea beat Real Madrid it will almost definitely be this summer and I think that with PSG Christophe Gaultier stands a very strong possibility of being relieved of his duties but PSG are just waiting to try and get league on over the line but both of those clubs are absolutely notorious for pre-lining up whoever they want so Chelsea on the one hand want to move because they know that for some of these names, it's a competitive market with lots of other clubs looking. 
But again, keep that two-way process in mind. That if Julian Nagelsmann thinks he can get another job that he prefers over Chelsea, he's not going to sign for Chelsea just because it's the first offer. He's going to use Chelsea as leverage in order to find out categorically whether anybody else is going to come in. And of course, the other key point on the timescale is just how many of these managers want to wait and see how far Chelsea go in the Champions League, whether Chelsea have any form of European football, and that could be a consideration before they're prepared to commit. So this is what makes it quite complex on the timescale. If you ask Chelsea, they'd love somebody in, in terms of decided before the end of the season. So as soon as the end of the season finishes, there can be maybe a transition in the last couple of days, not in terms of them starting or coming in, but just being able to add that stability so the playing staff know exactly what's happening before they go away for summer, which I think is very important, particularly with the level of likely outgoings at Chelsea and also just having everything done so you're not worrying. And when the window opens and you're talking to players just before the window opens, they're absolutely clear who's coming in. So from Chelsea's point of view, absolutely by the early or middle part of May, they would love somebody to come in. But it just depends on the manager. And if that manager feels like other options are not going to be apparent until the end of May or the early part of June, then Chelsea may have to wait and be made to sweat a little bit for some of their leading candidates. And that is just unfortunately football when you operate at the level of Chelsea and with the ambition of manager that they're looking for, there's always going to be competition, which means the timescale may not actually take place on Chelsea's terms. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting because like for Nagelsmann and Enrique, I think they're two of the top managers that are available period on the market at the moment. And with PSG and Real Madrid coming up, I know there's been a lot of rumours of Pochettino maybe going to Real Madrid, but I can see them at least just waiting just to find out. And I think that, doesn't benefit us um at all and I think like you said it might you know lead us to sweat a little bit so going back on something you said earlier in terms of like Chelsea debating internally whether you know this whole approach of young manager years months that type of thing um I guess you could say more of a long-term project I think they're still looking for that but you know that doesn't mean you can't do it with you know a Luis Enrique or or a proven coach like a Jose Mourinho or someone like that. But it's definitely more difficult, isn't it? Because I think personally, managers like Enrique, managers like Mourinho, you know, managers that are experienced, they want a level. Well, not even they want probably a high level of control on transfers and planning, and they want to build their squad, get their players in. Do you get a sense that Boli Igbali, um, I know we've talked about a lot about this, you know, you saying obviously it's more Igbali pulling the strings than Boli. Boli's just the face in the front of it. But do you get a sense that this next manager will be, if it is a Luis Enrique, first off, are they actually prepared, Boli Igbali, to maybe hand some control over to, to this type of manager? Because I, I don't think, you know, a... A younger manager is gonna. Uh, I think a younger ma younger manager is gonna come in and be more like a Graham Potter. Like maybe a Ruben Amarin, for example, would be more inclined to sort of work collaboratively. Whereas Luis Enrique and Mourinho, someone more experienced for me, would want to do things on their terms. You know, like I think that's that was the problem with Thomas Tuchel. They had disagreements. So, do you think Chelsea will actually be able to get a Luis Enrique in because? From my point of view, he's going to, obviously you, you'll you know more than me, but from my point of view, he's going to want a high level of control on transfers, I'd imagine. 
Yeah, this is the debate ultimately, and we see how Potter's tenure influences things because off the back of Thomas Tuchel, Chelsea wanted someone collaborative and Graham Potter came in with Carl McCauley, who's still at the club at the moment and signed a five-year contract, let's not forget. So you were bringing in someone off the back of Tuchel that had a recruitment expert as a sort of buffer between manager and recruitment team slash ownership. You had somebody that was very calm in personality and there were a lot of things to like in terms of Potter away from the football side and, to be honest, on the football side when he first joined. In retrospect, there won't be many that complement the football side now from a Chelsea perspective. But the fit of Potter was ultimately up and coming and the right personality off the back of Tuchel and somebody that bought into the model. And when we keep saying model and words like collaboration, I think fans get a bit irritated now because they want wins and goals, not progress and collaboration. And that's absolutely fine. And you can understand why fans think short-term and this ownership group have been thinking long-term. And at some point, if the long-term pays off, then the short-term success comes. And then that's when the fan base and the ownership group become a bit more married in their vision. But now it's whether or not there's so much to fix on the football side in terms of building an identity, consistency, goals, reducing the squad side, getting back into the Champions League if Chelsea don't succeed in winning the Champions League this season and getting there, that football and short term has maybe become a little bit more important than long-term vision, investment in youth and the business side, which will also include the multi-club model. And I think it's not about the ownership group being unwilling to surrender autonomy. I think it's more about them learning on the job. So as long as they don't repeat the same mistakes and as long as they work out what was good and what was bad about Tuchel and what was good and what was bad about Potter, then the third permanent appointment that they make will hopefully be one that provides a long-term solution for Chelsea and a little bit of stability. And that's ultimately what Chelsea need. So it's very easy to look back at a chaotic period and say everything's gone wrong, it's been dramatic, should Tuchel have been fired, was Potter a mistake, and then add the injuries and the lack of form and the huge squad size, and quite clearly Chelsea haven't been able to make any kind of progress on the field. So now moving forwards, has that basically changed the job description? And I think to an extent it will have done. And the other thing to bear in mind is that in the first window there were not these football brains and experts that are highly respected in the industry like Lawrence Stewart, Christopher Vivell, Paul Winstanley, Joe Shields and they're now adding to this committee who are making decisions so it's not about Ben Bali and Todd Bowley doing what they want and exerting their power the first window they had to because they chose to revamp the entire board and that included Marina departing which impacted the recruitment therefore the second window that they had was kind of planned with new staff but remember Lawrence Stewart even though he was impacting it from afar was not a staff member Joe Shields only just joined not everybody that came in before that window had been at the club that long so you could kind of argue that by the end of this season, it's the first real time that everyone behind the scenes has been in a defined role because Bowley was interim sporting director and now he's not. And Egg Barley has kind of 
learned through two windows what he wants his role to be on the recruitment side and how he wants to operate in relation to the two co-sporting directors in Win Stanley and Stewart. So the dynamic is still building. And part of that dynamic has to be freedom to challenge. And freedom to challenge basically means that sometimes you delegate, sometimes you listen to others. So it's absolutely true what you say about Egg Barley exerting a lot of power, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't listen. And I wouldn't go as far as to say that Bowley's the face. I mean, Bowley and Egg Barley have been glued to each other's side since the takeover happened. But the difference now is that Bowley is business orientated as chairman and is moving slightly away. I wouldn't say entirely, but slightly away from the day-to-day of recruitment, whereas Agbali, because he's got extra staff now, is tying himself a little bit more to the co-sporting directors. And as a consequence, you see him in London when Potter was sacked, when Lampard was appointed, talking, meeting with everyone behind the scenes at Chelsea, whereas Todd Bowley was back in America, still involved, but obviously a little bit more distant. So the dynamic is constantly changing and Chelsea now have to decide with the manager what they're prepared to give. And the manager has to also establish whether or not they think that they're a fit in the system. And if you look at Chelsea as a candidate rather than a football club, then if that candidate was applying for a job and said, since September, we've had two permanent changes and an interim change, and now we're about to bring in a fourth change, then if you were interviewing that candidate, you would basically say, how have you got through four people in a year? So that is the question that a manager will be asking Chelsea if they turn the tables. Why all this change? What went wrong? Was it to do with something that is going to impact me? How much of the money that you've spent means that I'm going to be constricted in the next window? How much say over players will I have? Who's leaving? All of these things are going to be asked. So therefore, when Chelsea look for the next manager, they may seed on some things and vice versa the manager may have to adapt to the new system still. So I don't think that rules out Enrique to come back to your question. It just means that he's going to have to be crystal clear on what the project and the vision is. Whereas with Nagelsmann, he's worked in a multi-club model before and he's also operated with Vivelle and Stuart before. So even though that was slightly different to Leipzig because their model isn't Chelsea's, It does mean that he has that dynamic. So if therefore they start saying, this is who we're going for, or this is what we want to do and it predates you, or this is who's coming in and there's nothing that you can do about it because it's already been established, then that relationship, both professionally and personally, could well be of benefit. And then with Amarim, I think people are too superficial with him and they say he's young, he'd fit into the model, he'd be what they we're looking for he'd be a bit of a yes man and he might relish the challenge and that's kind of nonsense if you look at Amarim and how he's actually acted because when there was a possibility of bringing Cristiano Ronaldo back to sporting Amarim went straight straight to the board and said absolutely no chance that that is happening and he put his foot down entirely and exerted full authority and autonomy and he's not really renowned for giving any preferential treatment to big stars. He's got a history of effectively being very team orientated 
and not looking at what people have done in their past or what wages they've been on or what was promised to them by others when they came to the club. He's very equal and fair and firm at times in how he treats people. And I think that that stepping into a Chelsea dressing room could actually be quite problematic. And I think, for example, back to Islam Slomani, who used to play for my club, Leicester, and Sporting paid to bring him and the dynamic wasn't right in the eyes of Amarim and manager and player fell out and very quickly Slomani found himself in the reserves and forced out of all contention. And it was basically, again, because Amarim said, no chance that I'm having a bad egg, no chance that I'm having a big name on big wages, no chance I'm having a player in my squad that I don't want. So there's two examples there with Slomani and Ronaldo who have probably never been used in the same sentence before. But it shows in each case that Amarim doesn't take any prisoners. Amarim uh, isn't just because he's young and up and coming going to be any kind of yes man. You only have to look at his history so far to see that he makes his own decisions. He wants his own control and therefore wouldn't necessarily be exactly the right kind of fit for Chelsea either. So we're going to have to wait and see with a lot of these names. But the key question in all of this is, are Chelsea going to still stick to their vision post-Potter? And does that restrict the amount of candidates that are the right fit? Or is it actually the opposite? And are Chelsea going to adapt their model because they've learned from their mistakes of the past? And I, I think to some extent it needs to be the latter rather than the former. It's like when you talk about like collaborative approach, I find this like very hard to understand what Boley and Iqbali actually like want in a manager because I'm sure Jurgen Klopp speaks to the owners at Liverpool. I'm sure Pep Guardiola speaks to the owners at Man City. I'm sure they're collaborative. What do that like what do Bowling League Bali actually want in terms of this collaborative approach? Because I know a lot of people, myself included sometimes, have just I don't know whether mistaken that as a yes man, but it almost seemed like when Potter was here it was like you know, Potter was very sort of, okay, yeah, we'll do that, we'll do this, you know, yeah, bring him in, that's fine, I'll work with him. Like, it was never, like, there didn't seem to be any, like, challenges. Like, you've mentioned Amarim there, challenging the board, don't bring Ronaldo back. You know, Tuchel, Tuchel said no to Ronaldo, it seemed like Bowley didn't like that. So, what do Bowley and Libali actually mean by this collaborative approach? What are they looking for? Are they looking for someone that holds meetings internally weekly and discusses the squad? Like, what is... What is a collaborative approach? Because for me, a collaborative approach is just basically not being an arse and actually speaking to the owners. But it seems like with Bowling League Bali, it's it's way more than that. Am I am I wrong? No, I don't think it's way more than that in the short term. You just want someone that's a fit on a football level, on a strategic level, and on a personal level, which adds calm and unity behind the scenes. But in the long term there has to be a collaboration that goes beyond just Chelsea in the now. And you mentioned Liverpool and it's telling that Todd Bowley, before he bought the club, spoke to a few people at FSG to establish how their system worked, which is also a transfer committee. And collaboration doesn't mean yes, man or woman. It actually means freedom to challenge. And freedom to challenge is a essentially way of describing a dynamic with a lot of cooks and titles 
are not as important as opinions. And if you have a hierarchy where everything feeds up by title to some kind of autonomous figure or owners at the top, then it becomes very difficult because there's no real debate. And if Chelsea are actually doing the manager search or something around a transfer correctly, there should be disagreement. If everything is always unanimous, even if that's what's said in public, then you're doing something wrong because you do have these yes men and women. So collaboration is about freedom to challenge and it's about a debate and it's about a series of voices on the football side, on the business side, on the ownership side, on the recruitment side, on the data side, that all input at different levels to come to decisions by numbers. And then at the top of the pyramid, you will have somebody that signs it off, whether that's Egbali or Bowley or the co-sporting directors, but it's about who's inputted to that decision-making process. And the manager is a big part of that, but not the only part. And collaboration is also about protection of the club. And that's the other thing in the long term that perhaps people forget. So even a very, very good manager, either due to age or new challenge or potentially succeeding and then a dip afterwards, as was probably the case with Jose Mourinho, won't stay for longer statistically than, let's say, four or five seasons. So even if Graham Potter was to be judged in years and somehow did amazing things at Chelsea, statistics show us that managers don't usually stay for longer than four or five years. And there are exceptions to that, of course. We think about Arsene Wenger and one or two others like Sir Alex Ferguson. But if the club are thinking even in a best case scenario about success year on year on year, over, let's just call it five to seven years, then if their model at the same time as investing in Chelsea is to bring through youth and to develop a multi-club model and to give these 16 to 21-year-olds five to seven-year contracts and to buy early and quickly in order to get a jump on the market and therefore to see the transfer fee and the wages as an investment, not an expense. And then if you go to that extreme, I said, of Chelsea is succeeding, they love their manager, they love everything about the current squad, that manager still has to collaborate on signings across that, let's call it five years that they're there, thinking about the future of Chelsea that they may not be a part of. So that's where the collaboration comes in. Because if you sign, even with the best manager in the world, a 15 or a 16 year old now for 20 million, on a seven-year contract, when are they actually going to break into the Chelsea side and hit their peak? Let's say at the age of 20. And if they're 16 now, that's in four years' time. Is your manager going to be there, even a really good manager? And if that manager is there, then flash forwards four years and do it again with the next 16-year-old and the next 16-year-old. Is your manager going to be there? So collaboration in many senses is about protecting the club's philosophy on youth, the club's philosophy on developing young talent, the club's philosophy on data, and also making sure that the club's decision-making is consistent, even if the manager changes. And Liverpool did that well in the sense that people like Billy Hogan and Barry Hunter, the chief scout, have been there and were part of a transfer committee with Brendan Rodgers all the way through to Jurgen Klopp. So if you give the manager too much autonomy, then great in the short term, it might work. But if they leave, there's a lot of loose parts and maybe the decision-making, the strategy around recruitment, the use of data 
it all could change once again. Whereas if you accept that the club stays and the manager, even a successful one might go and certain players you may sign now, but they may end up actually playing for a different manager. What you're actually doing is backing your philosophy, which is data orientated, youth orientated. And the manager buys into that because he or she gets something for the now, but they also have to accept that there's a wider strategy at play that they may or may not be a part of. And they have to surrender some autonomy because they just might not be at the football club. And that's not because the manager fails. It's just statistics. If every year or two years, you're constantly bringing in more and more youth and you're constantly saying they're not going to hit Chelsea Football Club if they succeed for four or five years, then the manager's probably, even in an amazing scenario, not going to be there for longer than a decade. And during that 10 years, the vast majority of young players that they sign may never play under that manager. So if the manager has too much say and control over them comparative to a more collaborative approach, then in essence, it's counterproductive because what if the new manager comes in and doesn't back that young player? So you have to have a balance basically between the now which is more manager orientated and the future, which is more team orientated. And part of that involves collaboration. Yeah, I think it's a very good and detailed answer. Um, it's, I don't know, it, it's, it's very interesting to see like what will happen in terms of, you know, the next manager and his thoughts and feelings on our sort of philosophy, as you said, over data and young talents and that sort of thing. Cause I don't know. I mean, I know Luis Enrique has worked with with young players, but I, I do think that the job does lean a little bit towards, you know, Julian Nagelsmann at the moment. Maybe that is why his favourite, you know, look at his work at RB Leipzig with all their young players and, and their philosophy there. It's also the Red Bull model is also something obviously that Todd Bowley really likes. So I think that is probably going to be um, who it is in my opinion, but I still think it's going to be very interesting to see you know, if another manager comes forward or a surprise candidate, as you said, maybe a Ruben Amarim or something like that. Um, so just on the collaborative approach, let's flip it a little bit. So we've talked about, or you've talked about what Boleag Bali, what the ownership want to see in terms of collaborative approach. What wouldn't they want to see? So what would Boleag Bali go, okay, so say they held talks with Luis Enrique, what would put them off when they were to, if when they talk about this collaborative approach? What do they not want to see in a manager? I think they don't want a manager that is going to be so autonomous that it may create friction. They also don't want a manager that they're worried will struggle to walk into the dressing room and control the squad. They won't want a manager either that has got a preference perhaps on experience and not as much on their CV and working with youth. And I'm not saying that many of these things apply to Luis Enrique, but I think that generally within the search, it will be about making sure that they don't bring in someone that is ultimately above their depth. Lots and of young talent as well. I don't think they're going to want anyone in that, you know, as you said, with experience, it's like, you know, I don't think Chelsea will be, you know, if Luis Enrique comes in and says, okay, I want a 28 year old instead of, you know, a 22 year old, I don't think that's going to work with this ownership. No, but 
I think the funny thing about everything, much like any job interview, is you won't find a manager out there that says, oh, I don't have experience in working with youth. I'm not a good man manager. They don't have an open door policy. I think that the Premier League will be too challenging for me. I want full control and I'm not going to listen to you. Every single manager <laughs> will argue at different levels that they're collaborative and that they're open and that their CV speaks for itself and that they've all worked with youth and by default, especially in this modern era, virtually every manager has worked with that 18 to 22 year old, let's say, age group, because there's so many under 23 players that are playing regularly at the top level. So I think that what Chelsea will be wanting is to take their time so as to dig a little bit deeper to determine whether or not these top football coaches and most of the candidates tick most of the boxes on the football side are also the right fit in other parts of the business. And that's where Julian Nagelsmann's so-called disciplinary problems at Bayern will be dug into. Even little things like with Luis Enrique, how much has his English improved? And is a lack of English going to be a factor in that dressing room or would they prefer somebody that has Premier League experience because Chelsea need to hit the ground running or does a manager's CV just show categorically that they constantly move jobs and is that a little bit of a worry as well so there's all of these kind of things that might be red flags and it's about in many ways not just interviewing the candidate but asking around as well so when you look, for example, at Luis Enrique, you see his managerial career as, I think, three years at Barca B. And then I believe it was only one season at Roma, one season at Celta, three good years at Barcelona, and those very short spells with Spain. So is there anything there whereby they say, hang on a minute, what went on at X, Y, and Z. And I don't think there's too many red flags there other than the Spain spell, because when you're an up-and-coming manager and you've got that affinity with Barca that Luis Enrique had, then it's normal that you would go on a little bit of a climb and eventually end up back at Barcelona. But they might look at that in terms of the tenure of the candidates to kind of work out whether or not they're going to stick around. The beauty, of course, of Chelsea is that you, you can always argue it quite arrogantly and say, if you've had that short tenure at other clubs, you'll stay at Chelsea because we're Chelsea and we're a massive club. But, you know, with Julian Nagelsmann, he joined Hoffenheim, uh, I think, 28 and spent, I believe, three years there and then went to Leipzig for two years. And then the climb to Bayern's no real surprise because if you're doing well, that you're always going to have a short stay at a club like Leipzig if a team like Bayern comes calling, but it's only 2021 to 2023 at Bayern. So are Chelsea therefore again going to dig into those issues that led to Nagelsmann sacking because it clearly wasn't based upon solely football. And they, they might, for example, do a little bit of side digging as well. So if Nagelsmann says in an interview that he can manage young players, then Chelsea might want to go and use their contacts to find out what went on specifically with Nagelsmann and Ryan Gravenberch, because Gravenberch came into Bayern with a massive reputation and he only joined um, this season and 
was seen as an incredible signing with a huge future, but didn't gel with Nagelsmann. The relationship wasn't there. And I think that Nagelsmann got frustrated because uh, Gravenberch is the kind of player uh, at 6'3 as a midfielder that loves to get forwards and wants to try and uh, impact being box to box. And Nagelsmann seemingly wanted him to be a bit more rigid and disciplined and defensive minded at times. And uh, they fell out. And as a consequence, Gravenberch hasn't played too much football. And it will be interesting to see whether or not Thomas Tuchel is able to change that and give him more starts rather than just appearances so it's only one example but you're walking into a Chelsea dressing room where you're going to have to manage young talent and you're going to have to manage a big squad and does an example like that give a bit of context as to what Nagelsmann was like in a big dressing room with his young players how was it handled there's two sides to every story so we shouldn't just swallow this disciplinary issues or failed to develop relationships with young players narrative as a given but again, it's one bit of context. It's one example that perhaps shows that in that particular case, a new signing was kind of frozen out and not man-managed in the best possible way, if we believe the player's side. And Chelsea might want to look into that as well. So I think this is where the no-nos are, coming back to your question. If the manager says one thing, but the due diligence and the digging actually implies it's another thing. And this is normal with any interview almost where you give your best side, you say all the right things. And then afterwards, what do you do in any job interview? You go and get a reference. And I think that's exactly what Chelsea will do as part of this process. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, deep interrogation almost. Um, it, it's going to be very, very interesting. I think listen to all the things you're saying, like, I think those references are going to be really important because in terms of Nagelsmann, like you said, with Ryan Gravenberch, really interesting because that's obviously in a, in a bigger dressing room, in a bigger club. But then, you know, you could compare that to what he did at Leipzig, where he was mainly managing that squad with mainly young players like Chelsea's. Like what one, you know, translates more, you know, which, which one is, is a better example to use. I think that's going to be the debate really in, internally at Chelsea and it, it, it does sound like, you know, a lot of interrogation, a lot of, you know, questions and, and background work after that. So, yeah, I think think the managerial topic is, is done for now. Really, really well answered, Ben. Really, really interesting to hear your points on each of the, you know, I mean, this the, the whole managerial situation, there's like, you know, a name and then there's like bullet points to that and then bullet points to that to lead off to that. So it, it's so much to discuss. And I think that's why, you know, Chelsea fans need to be a little bit patient. You know, there is a lot to do. Um, and, you know, I am personally a fan of them, of, you know, giving more time for themselves to make sure they get the right decision. Um, because, you know, if you bring a Nogsman or Luis Enrique in, you know, a week ago, they're, they're here for the Real Madrid game. Hey, we may we may win the Real Madrid game, but what what is the long term? Like, what is next season like, two years like? So... Yeah, I'd, I'd rather them give themselves more time, make sure they actually get it right than, than rush someone in. So, yeah, really interesting topic overall there in terms of the managers. So the last topic I want to go on to, and it's something you actually tweeted about, I believe yesterday, Chelsea published their financial accounts um, and some very, very interesting losses <laughs> were reported, Ben. So I guess the questions are, I mean, we've got a lot of questions in my DMs and replies. How, uh, you know, in quotation marks, in the mud are Chelsea? Are, are we screwed? Um, are Chelsea, I mean, we, we know we're dependent on player sales, but, you know, 
a lot of people are asking me to ask you, you know, Ben, how are Chelsea rumoured to Victor Osimhen? How are Chelsea rumoured to, you know, buying Jao Felix if, you know, all these losses are are apparent on the club's books? How many players can we realistically sell? What needs to be done in the summer, Ben, to make sure that Chelsea can actually still get star names? Because if you're talking about the managerial situation, which I think links in, Julian Nagelsmann, Luis Enrique, I mean, um, as much as they might like the squad, they're going to want some new players in. So what do Chelsea have to do in the summer to to make sure that they can avoid a, an FFP charge? They are going to have to focus on outgoings for sure because they reflect well on the books as well as instant profit annually minus any remaining amortisation if applicable. Whereas as we've spoken about many times, if you sign a new player you can divide the transfer fee by the contract length. In other words, for those that want it put in simpler terms, if, and I only use 10 because it's a nice round number, if you sign someone for 100 million on a 10-year contract, on your books, strictly for accounting purposes, the outlay is 10 million a year over 10 years. If you sell a player for 40 million and there's no amortization left, then it's all instant profit on the annual books and therefore should Conor Gallagher go for 40 million then that may offset on the books all of the little amortized costs for the likes of Enzo Fernandez, Mudrick and so on and this is ultimately why Chelsea have signed so many players on long-term contracts so that's something to bear in mind that regardless of money in money out there's also that creative accounting and outgoings are going to be very important And I can certainly see the squad size being reduced and one or two players that carry healthier transfer fees being sold. We have to wait and see whether that's Gallagher or potentially Mason Mount. But make no mistake, Chelsea have not agreed to sell Mounts. The Liverpool interest is very genuine and firm, but Chelsea still plan to pick this up again with Mason Mount and see what can be done. And we need to wait and see also what the new manager thinks. But this, again, is collaboration because it's about what the recruitment team think and the owners think and also what any new manager thinks, which is why they might choose to move on Mason Mount as they've done with Ben Chilwell before any new permanent manager comes in. But it isn't all doom and gloom financially. It's very easy to kind of parody Chelsea and look at the losses and the spending over the last two windows and think that they're in big, big trouble. But before the ownership group came in, Chelsea were relatively comfortably within financial fair play. And of course, what's changed now is mass spending over two windows and a likely lack of Champions League football to budget for next season. So that makes things now a little bit tighter. And none of this was expected when the ownership group came in. I think if we'd have said that they'll spend potentially, with all costs considered, over 600 million on players, plus have to pay compensation to managers and not qualify for Champions League football, I think that would have been seen as a very extreme scenario on all fronts, financially speaking. But it is what it is. And it becomes important now that Chelsea qualify for European football. I know that fans won't be in the slightest bit excited by Europa Conference League or Europa League, but financially, it's really important because it's more money coming in. We're, it's also- we're, we're not getting that, Ben, though. Sorry to interrupt you, but Ch- Chelsea are not getting that. I think you have to finish seventh for the Conference League. Am I right in saying? There's 
there's but no it's, chance it's we finish seven. It's not impossible at this point. It's unlikely at this point. They're on 39 points at the time we're recording it. Brighton are on 46. They'll have to play Brighton. So that's an opportunity to have a little bit of a swing. I do think it's difficult because Chelsea, I think in the last eight games, have got to play six teams above them in the table. But yeah. you just never know. But it's, anyway, it's still mathematically possible, which means that it's still important. These are not meaningless games just because Champions League football via league qualification is impossible. It's important financially. But coming away from all of that, the reason why Chelsea can be a bit calmer is because they knew a lot of this was coming and they're well aware that they can have these outgoings to offset the books. It wasn't like they spent in January in particular and now they're saying, yikes, it's tighter than we thought. They obviously spent in January knowing exactly what they'd spent previously and what was coming and budgeting for a worst case scenario and still taking this approach. And the reason why they can do that is first of all, under financial fair play, if you're the wrong side of the threshold, you can inject equity into the club to balance the books. So that actually gives you a little bit more leeway I'll have to check what the equity investment is, but off the top of my head, I think it's about 30 million. So that can help. And then Chelsea, are they to be in a position where they're in breach, can argue with both the Premier League and their profit and sustainability rules and also UEFA that the sanctions on them and the pandemic have played an impact as well. So this isn't only about new ownership spending. It's also about what they inherited. And due to the pandemic, in particular, but also the sanctions on Chelsea, there may be deemed to be extenuating circumstances. And if Chelsea are to therefore be investigated, do they believe that the punishment won't be that bad and it's almost worth taking because they've been able to move quite aggressively within the market? And that's another factor. And then financial fair play as well through UEFA's rules is becoming more stringent, but it's staggered in terms of how the new rules are implemented, which means that the punishments are not just going to come overnight. So it doesn't look good on the books, but it's about what the punishment would actually be and also whether or not there is extenuating circumstances. And as a result, I think that Chelsea still feel like they can offset a lot of their spend against their outgoings. And if you remove the spend from this equation, there's not much else other than the managerial compensation that would alarm the fan base in terms of the financial side of the football club, because some of it's pandemic related and some of it is ultimately on the old regime. When we talk about record accumulative losses exceeding 1 billion and Chelsea being the first club to hit that number in the Premier League, those are accumulative losses, which means that it's also on Roman Abramovich and that particular era and Chelsea was still able to function during that time as well so in essence if you focus only on the spend a lot of that money is either not yet accountable because of amortization or it's not yet definite because people are adding up the guaranteed fee with the add-ons rather than only focusing on the guarantee and then if Chelsea are able to offset all of that spend with outgoings, then they'll be fine on the annual books and in the cycles. And then it just becomes 
about the lack of TV money from European football. It becomes about operational losses. It becomes about finding a shirt sponsor that brings in more money. So it's tight, but there are ways around it. And even if Chelsea were to get punished, which we can't rule out, what is the punishment going to be is another big question as well. So until we see the outgoings and the level of income coming in, then we won't really know for sure. But you've definitely got a few players like Callum Hudson-Odoi, whose contract is running down, but they could get a fee for him. Conor Gallagher, they could bring in some money for Mason Mount. They could bring in some money for Aubameyang. If he goes, they'll want a fee for, but we wait and see because if it's Barcelona, they'll definitely want to try and get him on a free transfer. Kai Havertz could obviously get money for. If they can't make Jawa Felix work, they don't have to sign him. There's no obligation there. Hakim Ziyech, you can get a fee for. Christian Pulisic, you can get a fee for. So there's a lot of options that will allow Chelsea to bring in income. And we forget about the whole conveyor belt of youth players that may not be at the Chelsea standard that Chelsea have notoriously been able to generate money from. And each of them will end up adding up. So even if you only bring in 10 million for a player, then that might pay for your annual amortization in that year of Mudrick plus somebody like Enzo Fernandez. And then you can breathe a little bit easier in that year and focus on the future. And I think the final thing I'd say, and I hope that I'm not going into too much detail, but whereas sometimes people say, well, it's too detailed, we're not interested in the detail. I think with the finances, people actually are quite interested in learning about these things because it's not rumor, it's not a transfer. They perhaps don't understand the dynamic and words like amortization. So the last thing I would say is, when people are panicking about Chelsea's finances, they're also delving into the past, which is a different regime and a different model that, as I said before, is partly accountable for these numbers. But if this is genuinely a new model and a new vision, then this is the bit that Chelsea fans should be excited by. So when we're talking about the football side and long term Fans are basically annoyed because they just want to win and they just want goals. But if we're talking about the business side and the model and the long-term vision, here is where Chelsea have the ability to generate more income. So we shouldn't be judging, therefore, Chelsea's numbers based upon Abramovich. We should be basing Chelsea's projections on their business model. And as a result, heading into the next financial cycle in the next five years, if their model has higher numbers on non-football income, such as, let's say, redeveloping the stadium and then staging pop concerts or NFL games, if they're bringing in more money because they're going to be part of a endorsed Premier League pre-season tournament, if they're increasing their shirt sponsorship, if they're investing or buying other clubs as part of a multi-club model and that's generating them money, then on the business side, on the operational side, if Chelsea are making more money, then all of these numbers change. And if it's tight and these numbers all improve, then that might be the difference between being on the right side of the threshold and the wrong side of the threshold. So that's where we need to give respect and patience to the business model side, because if they are genuine in improving the finances of the club and modernising the club away from the football side, then in essence, what we see on the books from 2021-2022, which let's not forget predates this ownership group, may not be a reflection of what we see on the books in 2022, 2023, 2023, 2024, and so on. So it's really important to understand that 
these numbers are not set in stone because a new ownership group has a new approach and therefore commercial income, match day income, outgoings income, income from youth, income in the long term from the redevelopment of Stamford Bridge or whatever they do with the stadium. These are all going to impact the numbers. So if their business model is smart, then they may back it and not be particularly worried again about these numbers, even though on paper they do look quite alarming. Yeah, it's obviously a very, very detailed subject, but I think you're probably the best person to explain the finances. So I hope everyone has, you know, taken that in. It's, it's you know, it doesn't mean we don't have to worry, but there's definitely so much more context to it than just, you know, Chelsea spend another 200 million this summer, they're screwed. Like, that's not the case. So, um, yeah, Ben, just to end this episode, I wanted to ask you if you heard anything about this new partnership that Chelsea announced. I've the name off the top of my head. I mean, you may know I'm trying to find my tweet, but they announced a partnership with a technology company, I believe. It was like a five or six year deal. Um, and it was supposed to help enhance the things on, you know, like the the digital production on the fifth stand up and, and that type of thing. Um, so th- these sort of avenues for Chelsea, is is this the sort of thing they want to do in terms of like bowling barley finding sponsorships partnerships to to increase the revenue and and the revenue that comes in you know um from these partnerships does does that obviously help on the books and does that give you more leeway to 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 spend on transfers ultimately it can do i mean data is very important and that's not just on the recruitment side it's on the medical side and on the fan engagement side and that's exactly what this partnership with Tempus X Machina does. It's seen as cutting edge technology that has been successful in both the sports and entertainment industry. And ultimately what Chelsea are trying to do is modernize. And in this particular context, they are partnering with a company that kind of merge sports video and data in order to improve the user experience and fan engagement as well. So this is about Chelsea being more immersive and that can be via an app, but it could also potentially extend to inside the stadium as well. And Tempest X, as they're known for short, are very successful and respected within the NFL in particular. And they sit on that intersect between fan engagement, data collection, video technology, smoothness of user experience, and on top of that gamification, I think it's fair to say as well. And a lot of this might not mean anything to a great deal of people, but what their technology allows for is effectively fans to access things easier and quicker and smoother and for Chelsea to make experiences more immersive, which might be through polls or customization. And on top of that, Chelsea will be able to collect more fan data and reach fans in more specific ways. And when you do that, you build your digital audience and you start to understand them better. And then eventually you're able to commercialize that and offer perhaps more premium things as well. So this is really just another small step whereby 
Chelsea will be able to use Tempersex's technology across various different operational areas. One of them, as you say, is the Fifth Stan app. It will also be used across their digital platforms as well. And in all likelihood in the stadium as well, and to give sponsors added value as well. So this isn't necessarily about a partnership that makes Chelsea money at face value and now, because in all likelihood they're paying Tempus X rather than being paid by Tempus X. But what you do is you create this technology because then inadvertently you give sponsors extra value, you give fans extra value, you provide something that's more modern and more immersive. And then over time, what you've paid to do that gives you a return because when you sell something to a sponsor, it's got a higher number on it because your technology is more integrated and cross-platform. And ultimately, if you build your digital audience, that always provides value as well. And I think that clubs like Manchester United, who are for sale potentially at the moment, have been very big on placing a high value on their fan base and on their digital audience. And it's quite hard sometimes to quantify what is your fan base? How active are they? How much data do you have on them? What age are they? Where are they based? What are the languages that they speak and interact with? How many games do they go to? How much do they spend at a game? Who's the season ticket holder? And do they buy anything else? Are they spending money at the restaurant or the club store and coming to games? Is it families? Is it men? Is it women? Is it children? How inclusive are we? Etc. So all of this helps kind of connect the fan base on the one hand, which is where the data side comes in, but also gives the fans more for their money and encourages them to do more in an immersive sense rather than a passive way. So I think it's a good platform. It's a good venture by Chelsea. It may well, it should well pay off financially in the long run as well. And this is the kind of move that in a small sense shows again, the American led owners doing what they know best, doing what they're more comfortable with, which is investing in something modern, investing in something with a high onus on user experience and fan engagement and investing in something that they think is going to reap commercial rewards. And because it's been used by a lot of American clubs, particularly in the NFL before, they see evidence that it's worked in America where fan engagement is arguably better than at Premier League clubs, and they're simply trying to replicate that. And when they come in with these big, let's just call it, even though it's very superficial, American-led ideas on the football side, I think that fans panic, and that's where they get a bit parodied, hence all of the fallout from the All-Star Game suggestion. But when they come in with these big American-led ideas on data or fan engagement, I think that everyone's a bit calmer because we all accept that the fan engagement in baseball, in basketball, in NFL, the use of data in these sports as well is far superior to the Premier League. And if they can obviously move Chelsea towards that, then hopefully on the business side, the fans will benefit, the sponsors will benefit and they'll end up making more money from it. So to me, it seems like a very sensible partnership. Yeah, it sounds very interesting in terms of like the collection of data and, and that sort of thing. Um, and also, like like you said, it, it can allow fans hopefully to be more immersive. So, like just to end off the episode, what type of like ideas or like what what type of things do you think this technology would 
allow um Bolian and Co to use in terms of like the fans? Like you mentioned at match day, like what type of things could 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 they do? Do you reckon? Well, it can be anything really from being able to, and this is probably further down the line or a new stadium, order food from your seat or make a purchase and click and collect it. It can also be utilizing phone plus scoreboard, which is something that a few companies do nowadays where something flashes up on the scoreboard and you point your phone at it and then you get a quiz on your phone or you engage in a poll, anything that is more immersive. That's the key word. Usually these companies focus on gamification or user experience. So when it's gamification, it's about making you do something more active. In other words, you're not just watching something, you're actually contributing to something either through a poll or a quiz or a chance to win something or a filter or sending something on your phone that might end up on the big scoreboard. And then with the user experience, that's where you can just have a smoother process to ultimately order something and then collect it, whether that's your food at halftime, whether it's brought to you at your seat, which we see in American sport, or whether it's being able to jump the queue somehow if you want to buy something from the club shop. And then over time, you can have incentivization whereby in America, and I'm not saying specifically that this is what Chelsea are going to do, but in America, you have things like if the opposing team missed two free throws, then everybody gets a free slice of pizza. And who's to say it won't be the same if you sign up for this technology and your opponent misses a penalty or Chelsea score more than three goals, which is a very safe bet at the moment in terms of <laughs> yeah. not having to give away any food. But you know what I mean? It might be something like that. But only no, that's, that's, that's quite cool to be fair. Like I could imagine myself, you know, like, I mean, first off, the Wi-Fi would actually have to work in the ground, which I don't know is something they're working on personally, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine myself because I go to a lot of home games, like I can imagine myself, you know, sitting down before kickoff going on, you know, maybe this app that maybe or, you know, the fifth stand up, you know, what's going to happen in this game, prove you're at the game type thing. And then like bet, you know, Chelsea going to score two goals this game. And if, if you do, you know, you, you then get like a like you said, like some free food or something. If Chelsea score two goals by half time, you then go up to, to the food counter and say, look, I put this bet on like. That would be quite a cool way to do things. I, I quite like that. Um, I'm not sure some of the older fans would, would enjoy that type of, of, of experience, but I know for certain, you know, that would definitely appeal to, to the younger fan base, don't you think? Yeah, just about options, though, as well. Like, nobody's saying, by the way, that it would be all of this. These are just examples in other sports. It's, it's quite cool, though. It's quite cool. It can be quite cool, but let's say you're an older person, then it might be more about not having to move to get your food. You might be able to order on your phone or you might even be able to email in beforehand and then somebody else will sync it all up on whatever app they use. And it could just be as simple as volunteers prepared to bring up food to those that can't move as easily or don't want to be involved in a crowd. It can be used for things like meetups, whereby those that want a more inclusive experience or want to make friends through Chelsea might be able to meet up with like-minded fans or find out the kind of pubs that others go to or post-match or pre-match activations that they can be a part of. And of course, people listening will say, well, we do all that anyway. We use social media for that. We use message boards for that. But that's really the point in all of this, that if you think about everything you like about Chelsea away from the football, 
how do you make your friends? It's through social media. It's through pubs and organic meetups. It's through the people next to you. But some of this is often quite random. It's something you see on a feed. It's something you see on an email. It's something that you get because you happen to sit next to somebody. It's a pub you walk into and you just end up meeting somebody. Um, imagine if there was a bit more connectivity where as a young fan in particular, you could potentially go to one place and you could find out where people are going or you could add friends and you could chat to them and the meetup place would be clearly marked. But then at the other extreme, there might be a bunch of 70 plus year old Chelsea fans that feel a little bit lonely and feel a bit overwhelmed by the atmosphere and wonder whether there's a load of other people their age that don't want to go to a pub, but would quite like to go and get coffee or dinner after a game. And this is what responsible, inclusive clubs do. They cater to all communities, all ages. And this is where this type of technology could be used. And again, I want to be very clear here that I'm not saying that this will be the day one or even Chelsea will do this, but there are examples of this technology in other sports. And then, of course, the final thing with these kind of apps is that they can be used for inclusivity. So perhaps somebody that is worried about reporting something and not being anonymous might also be able to use their phone to say, listen, somebody around me is shouting homophobic abuse. Somebody around me is being racist. Somebody around me is being violent. And they might be able to tap something into their phone and it might be able to alert a steward. So it's about taking all the elements that Chelsea already do, which is trying to be inclusive and generate fan engagement and collect data and obviously push the commercial side of the business as well and give the fans the most modern experience. And that can be in all of these ways that we've said, or none of them potentially, because it's a work in progress and it depends on what Chelsea's team want to do with it. But this type of technology gives them all of these options. So let's wait and see how they use it. Yeah, very interested. I'm a little bit more excited about this, actually, now. I'm, I'm really interested to see what Chelsea plan to do with this. I think, like you said, there's so many different avenues they could go down, and I think it could go down very well with the fan base. Um, So that would be very, very interesting. So, um, yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end off the episode, guys. I hope you have enjoyed this. It's been very, very detailed. A lot of discussion about the ownership. There's been discussion about the management. There's been discussion, obviously, about partnerships and also the finances as well. So, Ben, as always, thank you so much for, for joining me. Any socials, Any anything you want to plug, anything coming up that you can tease us with? Just the usual, really, at Jacobs Ben on Twitter, Ben David Jacobs on TikTok, which is a little bit newer. That's also the same for Instagram as well. For me, Champions League, quarters, semis and final, conclusion to Serie A, Napoli on a bit of a procession there. But those are two big things for CBS. And I'll also be covering Chelsea women in the women's. Champions League as well so whereas the men play Real the women have got a really exciting and tough game with the home leg at Stamford Bridge against Barcelona so do support them in that one as well not an easy task for Emma Hayes's side but they beat Leon in incredibly dramatic fashion with Lauren James winning a penalty with the last kick of the game and then Chelsea going on to win that in a shootout so that's been exciting and hopefully more of that to come in that Barcelona game. So I'll be across that as well. And obviously you can follow me across social media. And if you're in America, make sure that you also tune in to CBS Sports HQ. I think the final thing to say as well is that if you are in America, at CBS, we've got a brand new morning football show as part of a 24-7 
football network called CBS Sports Colasso and Morning Football, which is 7 till 12 Eastern, launches actually today and will be a daily morning weekday show for two hours. So we're really excited about that because it's never been done before across North America. And it's perhaps a chance for the team to be a little bit more magazine-y, a little bit more socially orientated, less news, more personality, but it will also have all of our rights. So you'll be able to kind of recap the previous day, watch a lot of goals and action, debate the talking points and have a laugh. And we've got a great talent lineup for that. So if anyone happens to be tuning into this from America, particularly make sure on Paramount Plus and Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app as well, that you tune into that one because we've put a lot of work into that over the last month and it launches, as I say, today. So do tune in if you can. Sounds really good. I have no idea what TV, uh, what um, TV channels you just mentioned are, but I know <laughs> from from my statistics that uh, I do have a few American listeners. So for you guys, hopefully you're tuning in. Um, you know, I'm sure maybe you've already heard about it or checked it out, but it seems to be starting soon. So definitely check that out on those TV channels, guys. So yeah, thank you so much for for listening. Thanks again to Ben for coming on. And as I said at the start of the episode, please leave a five star rating if you have enjoyed. That's the most. That's the best way you can help this podcast out on its future. So hopefully I'll have some more episodes for you guys soon with journalists. I also want to bring on some, you know, Chelsea Twitter accounts, you know, the likes of maybe Con, Mod, CFC Daily, Alex Goldberg. I want to try and get those guys on as well. So if there's anyone you want me to get on specifically, please message me and uh, on Twitter at CFC POS or also at Max London's First. That is my personal account. So please message me on either. Both my DMs are open. Give me suggestions and the way to improve this podcast as well. I'd really appreciate it. Um, but anyway, guys, thank you for listening and I will see you in the next one, which will hopefully be soon. Take care, everyone.